Hi, this is Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. I've worked on hunger in America for more than 30 years without fully appreciating how profoundly it impacts those to whom we owe the most, but in some ways provide for the least. I'm talking about our nation's veterans, as well as those currently serving in the military. They'll be on my mind this Memorial Day weekend, though, because of the powerful conversation I had with Chef Alex Semoyoa, a return vet who'd been deployed in Afghanistan and now owns one of the most popular restaurants in Washington, D.C., Espita Mezcaleria. Doing what I do with Share of Strength means a lot to me because I grew up pretty much hungry. You know, uh, there was a time in my family where everybody was unemployed and there was no food. And my mom would tell me, hey, go to school. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. uh, summertime, go to school lunches, you know, yeah. go go eat over there because we don't have much here. And also in this conversation, Josh Protus from the hunger organization Maison, which is working to address the injustice of veterans in America who get shortchanged when it comes to the food assistance their families need and deserve. I just can't fathom that we wouldn't pay the expense of getting these families the help that they need from SNAP. I mean, that surely is the least that we can do. But the price tag for that seems to be too much to justify for some members of Congress. Ironically, President Trump's first budget, released just this week, provides more for defense contractors, but less for hungry vets and military families who serve and sacrifice for their country. The proposed cuts to the SNAP food stamp program are an especially harsh slap in the face to the men and women who've come back from war and not yet been able to fully support themselves. If you want your Memorial Day weekend to mean more than picnics and parades, listen to this episode of Add Passion and Stir and find out how you can honor our military and our veterans. We want to talk a little bit about uh, Memorial Day, and we want to talk about veterans' hunger, but we also want to talk about food. And what we try to do on Add Passion and Stir is talk about the intersection of food and so many other things that we care about, like our health, like our environment, like the ability to make sure kids are developed and educated. But also, uh, as we think about Memorial Day weekend and how we celebrate it, the fact that we've got veterans in this country who are actually hungry, which is hard to believe that anybody who has served our country so honorably could end up in such a position. So we'll come to that. But first, Alex, tell us why my sister Debbie is so crazy about your food. How How did you become such a great chef? Uh, I, I want to thank my mom for that. Yes. <laughs> um, a lot of reading, uh, a lot of working with different guys, super talented guys in New York. But I think everything that I, I do when Debbie comes around is just a little bit more extra for her. Oh, um, am I right? Your so mom's nice. your mom's Puerto Rican, your dad's Guatemalan. Yes. And you cook kind of Mexican? Oh, yeah. Not well, kind the, of. Tell, tell us the, I mean, just tell us the evolution, the, the, the kind the of the, the, the so, forces that shaped your cooking. You know, it. Cooking was not what I wanted to do when I was a young kid. You know, it just happened when I, I guess, got out of high school, right into college, and then I gave up everything, and I said, oh, I'm going to become a cook. Why not? But growing up, my mom was always like, she was, this is it. We're cooking. We're Come here. Clean these carrots. Come here. You know, wash these uh, tomatoes or potatoes, anything that we were cooking at the time. And so I watched her, and I was like, hmm, that's cool. Okay, cool. And then I would go back to watch TV as a little kid, and then I would eat when my dad showed up. But it always stood in the back of my head. It's like, it was a joyful kind of experience yeah, in your home. It was. It was fun. You know, my, when my mom needed something done, I was like, okay, I, I jumped to the, just do it. Um, I think at like the age of nine, I, I know it sucks to say, but I was like, I was already peeling potatoes with by my hand with a knife. <laughs> you know, we didn't have a peeler at home, so it was like, all right, I was just peeling them for my mom, and she was like, okay, leave those there, go back to watching TV. I'm like, okay, cool. 
you know that uh, the cooking it was never in in my imagination of becoming a chef or or anything anything that's happened in my career so far it's like nothing that i dreamed of that as a little kid it just happened and, and so and how did it happen like what were some of the next steps between you know peeling potatoes with your mom to You've got a restaurant in Washington, D.C. I know. So uh, it's funny to say, uh, Josh, I worked for, I think my first job as a caterer was for Mazone in five towns, Long Island. Wow. Uh, I was 18 years old, and I worked in their commissary over the five towns. And that's how I started getting into it. And then I said, you know what? This probably isn't so much for me. I'm going to get into a restaurant. Uh, as soon as I finished culinary school, my first internship was at Danielle's, and then literally the... so you started at a pretty good place. Yeah, I got this lucky. Is, this is Danielle Balut. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I one got, of, one, I of, got the, one super of the greatest lucky. French chefs in the <laughs> I world. I got super lucky, and then you know they weren't hiring, and then at the time the chef there was Chris Lee, and he was like, you know, I got a friend, uh, and then I was like, cool, you know, I'm looking for a job just to get into anywhere. You know, you're humble at that age. And he was like, yeah, you know, he's over at Lower East Side. He's got a nice little restaurant over on Clinton Street. And I was like, cool, all right, cool. Gave me his number, you know, spoke to uh, the sous chef at the time. And he said, yeah, just come on by on a Wednesday, like around noon, and we'll chat it up. I come in, and lo and behold, I'm standing at one of the greatest restaurants of all time, WD-50. Yes. Oh, yes. Wiley Dufresne. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, that, and I walked in, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm walking into, like, one of the cathedrals in, in the world. So, you know, two and a half You knew. Years I mean, later. you had an appreciation for where you were. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wow, out of all places, I got, I got dropped here. So I uh, spoke to the sous chef at the time, Mike Shearing, and started as a prep cook and moved my way up all the way to uh, Poissonnier, which was working with Wiley on the line right next to him on certain days. And it was the best time of my life, almost two and a half years I spent there. And then it just started... It's like, all right, now I want to learn uh, Spanish cooking. Now I want to learn Italian cooking. So I would jump around to different restaurants, and my life just started evolving, and I started learning. And then all of a sudden— You had to have been working very hard, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's really hard work at the level that they're cooking at. Yeah, so uh, you would get shifted for maybe you know eight hours. You would get an eight-hour shift. and then So once I would do my job, I would go and hang out with everybody to watch how they worked at their stations during service. So if I'd get there at 8 in the morning, I would stay probably until 9, 10 at night just to watch how the cooks seared things, how they cooked things, how they communicated on the line, how they picked up tables, you know, uh, if there was something wrong, how did they fix it on a fly, like everything. I just wanted to know. And then I think the trust level was building with the uh, senior cooks and myself that they would also let me prep their station. Let alone whatever they needed here and there, but they would let me actually butcher some of their fish, butcher some of their meats, because they, you know, everybody had to be responsible for uh, their meat. So that's what I got. So you were willing to do whatever you had to do yeah. to learn all the different aspects of this. Yeah, incredible, so. Josh. Uh, one of the things that always is a thread through this conversation is the degree to which food is connected to the issue of hunger. And I know that uh, Maison is an organization that uh, those of us in Washington really depend on for their advocacy and their policy work, and you're in the middle of that. Tell us a little bit about uh, Maison. Its tagline is a Jewish response to hunger. Uh, so tell us about, about Maison and what, that, what, do, what do you mean by a Jewish response to hunger? Sure. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Mazon uh, is a Hebrew word. It means food or sustenance. And food is so fundamental in Jewish culture and really across all cultures. Mazon draws its inspiration from Jewish tradition and, and wisdom. 
and is all about advocacy. We've been around since 1985, and we really try to mobilize the American Jewish community to get involved in the cause of hunger. And that really means advocating for smart public policy. Uh, the emergency food system is important, but it was never designed to fully meet the needs that are out there. So we try to get people engaged to pay attention to what's going on and to really speak out for smart policies, and we need it more than ever right now. Josh, I feel there's this irony approaching us as we're heading into Memorial Day weekend, or maybe by the time folks have listened to this, we've just uh, uh, enjoyed Memorial Day weekend, but we're also uh, coincidental to that the, the Trump White House is going to be issuing a budget which could really take a terrible toll on anti-hunger programs that most of us care about, particularly the SNAP program. How are you thinking about that, and what will the response to that be? Well, uh, thanks for bringing it up. We're very, very worried about uh, about the budget proposal. And, of course, presidential budget proposals are a bit of an exercise in abstraction. Uh, they rarely uh, come to pass, but it's a signal about the values and priorities with the administration. And what we're hearing, uh, and the budget will be released tomorrow, um, we're hearing rumors about pretty massive cuts to the SNAP program, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program which it's a cornerstone of our uh, nutrition assistance safety net, and it will have a devastating impact on folks. And the people who are touched by hunger span all walks of life in this country. And uh, as you mentioned before, there are veterans, there are currently serving military families who need help from SNAP, and surely they are going to be hurt by these cuts. So we're we're worried about what's going to happen. If I understand this right, we've still got – uh, from an all-time high of 47 million Americans on the SNAP program at the at the worst of the, the Great Recession, we've still got about 44 million Americans uh, who are uh, receiving food stamps through SNAP, and about almost half of them are children. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, almost half children and uh, a number of others who are seniors, uh, people with disabilities. And th- there's a real misconception that SNAP goes to people who are lazy and don't want to work. And the truth is that a lot of working families receive help from SNAP because they're just not making enough to, to make ends meet. So the program is there to, to help people, and, and particularly for families with children. It's a real lifeline that has long-term benefits for those families and for our society. And what do you suppose is behind the proposed cuts? I haven't seen that many details yet, but uh, what's been reported is that the administration wants to make significant cuts to the SNAP program, to the Medicaid program, to some uh, disability uh, benefit programs. But uh, what's, do you think it's ideological? Is it, are there significant budget savings to be had short-term and long-term? Why would you cut a program that funds something as basic, as fundamental, as necessary as food for kids and families? Gosh, I, I'd find it hard to justify those kind of cuts. But if I were to speculate, I, I think it's both budgetary and ideological. So uh, there's a real push to find budget savings, and uh, and there's not a deep appreciation of the impact of these programs. But I think the other part of it is ideological and, and a fundamental difference about what the proper role of government is. And I would contend that Programs like SNAP do exactly what the government should be doing to make sure that we're giving a hand up to families that need it to help them get back on their feet. For those who are not able to work and, and fully support themselves, that we're able to take care of the most vulnerable in our community. And um, I, I think that's a fulfillment of our collective responsibility to each other. That's exactly what government should be doing. 
unfortunately, there are others who have a uh, different opinion about the role of government. One of the things that we see over and over again is that um, the vulnerable are also often the most voiceless. So if it's children, uh, if it's senior citizens, if it's veterans who have returned home and uh, have been you know, almost forgotten in terms of their service to the country, um, those are the groups that often suffer from these cuts. Uh, but Alex, let me ask you, you're uh, not only a great chef, you are a veteran. Um, yes. you, were, uh, you joined the Army, and you were telling us earlier that um, there were a whole variety of factors that went into that, that it was a very powerful and positive experience for you. Yes. I think maybe your sister served first in the yep. military. Um, tell us how you became um, uh, into military service. Uh, I, it was a, it was a calling. I want to say it was a calling. You know, I was already to serve. Yeah, it was a calling to serve. Um, like I was saying earlier, there was a few guys that I grew up with that enlisted themselves and never came back. And then, not that I wanted to be a hero, but it's because I wanted to keep up what they were trying to do. Uh, I spoke to my sister, and she was like, "Yeah, you should totally join. You know, if, you, if it feels like you want to do it, then you should do it." No matter what. Where were you in your career at the time that you decided to join? I I think I just left uh, MPM. So you really, so you put your career on, hold on pause, uh, knowing that you'd come back to it, not sure if you'd come back to it. How did you think about that? Not sure I was coming back to it. Okay. And where, and then uh, what, where, tell us your path in the military, where you trained, where you were deployed. Uh, so I joined the Army. Uh, Got sent to Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, joined the infantry. Then I came back. I was uh, stationed at Fort Drum, 10th Mountain, and then deployed 2014, came back, and then joined the reserves. Deployed to Afghanistan? Yes. Then joined the reserves. uh, Got out maybe, ooh, I want to say almost a year ago. Um, And there's still friends that I have in and are still in, and I, I can't get out. I can't get out. It's, I can't still, it's still in your blood yeah. in that sense. And there's times right now it's like, yeah, you know, I I don't know if I could be a civilian anymore. There's there's just the politics of everybody whining about everything. It's like you just got to get stuff done. Nobody's getting it done. And how, how long will you be in the reserves? How does that work? Oh, that was three years also. Three years. Yeah. Uh, so when you're deployed, is that a so – I'm, I'm literally trying to picture uh, somebody on a plane on their way to Afghanistan. Um, is that – terrifying is that exciting what what does that feel like terrifying is on that plane because it, it is not your regular uh delta flight right <laughs> and, and i mean and you i mean i guess you're trained for every situation once you get there do you feel ready yeah you, you're never ready you can't be you can't never be ready, ready right but but you are trained you are you are uh you're shown what to do when things get hot and then you have to relax and calm down and think of every situation you were taught when you were training. You were saying earlier that there was uh, there were uh, many aspects of the of the military that were that were uh, the the structure, the discipline, the the teamwork that um, the embrace of that was very comfortable for you. Yeah. That was a, a good feeling, and it sometimes it's harder to come back and be a civilian again. Yeah, because you pick up this love. You know, you you go to bed. At the same time with all you guys, you wake up at the same time with all you guys. You train together. You work out together. You literally go out to eat together. That's all you have is just your guys. Um, and you live for each other. Literally, you live for the guy to the right of you. You get live for the guy to the left of you because when you, when you go country, you start getting a shot at or something like that happens. Like you, You're hoping that they got your back. 
and you feel that in the moment. You're not just saying that looking back on it, but like when you're there, you're that that that's my that guy. feeling that's is my present. Brother. That, that's that my brother, and no that's power. totally unique. There's no other situation, certainly no other job, right, where you where you have that kind of bond with people day in and day out. So it's not surprising hearing you talk about it. It's not surprising that it's such a uh, deeply special, specific. Right feeling that you can't get on the outside. Yeah, no. can't get it. You know, I I was just thinking about when Josh was talking about um, veterans and and Billy when you were talking about being voiceless um, and vulnerable. I years ago, and you'll remember, I was I went to Pine Ridge uh, to visit a program that we were supporting. Pine Ridge this is uh, a Native reservation. reservation. Yeah, uh, it's a Lakota reservation, mm-hmm. and we spent three days meeting people that were living on the reservation. It's a, it's a horrible place. It's a place where you've got some of the highest numbers of poverty and hunger and every other social ill you can imagine, you know, very high numbers of alcoholism and um, drug addiction, suicides, murders, um, high level of poverty, joblessness. And it was all very sad. And um, I remember one specific day, we met a man who was living in a small hut. It was very cold. It's South Dakota. It was late fall, so it was almost winter, and it was very, very cold, and he had a dirt floor. And he was a veteran. I'll never forget the all of us had. He was a Vietnam veteran, and we could not believe that this veteran was living like this. So in when you talk about voiceless and vulnerable, you don't get more voiceless or vulnerable than you do in this country anyway than you would on an Indian reservation in South Dakota. Well, I know Josh has had a lot of experience dealing with policy issues affecting veterans. And Josh, before I turn to you to talk about that, one other thing I want to ask you, Alex, is um, does it feel like when you when you come back home, does it feel like there's a disconnect? My, my perception is that there's a real disconnect between those who have served in the military and the rest of us who basically lead our lives without almost any interruption or inconvenience. Our nation's been at war in Afghanistan and Iraq for almost 15 years. And uh, there's only a very small percentage of us that have any real personal connection to it. Do you feel that disconnect? Is it something that um, that is palpable to you? Do you resent it? Does, how does it make you feel? Or, or is it not there at all? Uh, it, uh, taking things for granted. Warm water. Uh, dry clothing, uh, somewhere to sleep. That we take things for granted, yes. You know, those are the things that are, as soon as you come back, like, all you hear is complaining, complaining about everything. I got to wake up early. Oh, I got so much to do, so. Uh, among civilians you're talking yes. about, yeah. It's like, so, you know, it's part of life. And what's your sense of, I guess, not just that disconnect, but how we treat our returned vets? You know, that's one of those hard things that's, because everybody's in their own world, I think nobody actually – everybody gives that I do care, but nobody's really there. You know, uh, I want to say for guys in Vietnam, like the VA was never there for them. And for any past wars and situations, like the VA was never there for them. Now it's getting a little better for the guys in the last 16 years, but now mm-hmm. it's still still crap. You know, I got some friends that can't even get earpieces out of the VA. And they can only hear through one ear. Right. Something as basic as that. Yeah. And they served. Josh, tell us, what are the, the, the um, what's the situation in terms of veterans and hunger? I've seen some, some statistics that uh, say that about $80 million a year is spent, separate from veterans, is spent um, uh, of the SNAP 
food stamp money is spent at military commissaries. And then we know that there's a significant number of returned vets who experience either food insecurity or what we call very low food security, meaning that they actually literally don't have enough to eat. Uh, I know you've, you've got some expertise on this. What should we understand about it? So these are really hidden issues, and only recently have we started to understand some of the unique challenges. And there are different challenges for currently serving military families than there are for veterans. For currently serving families, uh, the people that we're talking about who are impacted by food insecurity are lower-ranking enlisted members who have larger household sizes. So these are families with young children, and there's a quirk in the law about food stamp eligibility that makes it more difficult, shockingly, for military families to qualify. It has to do with their basic allowance for housing benefit. So for uh, military families that live on base, they get their housing provided as an in-kind benefit. It does not get counted as income uh, for SNAP purposes. But for those who live off base or in privatized housing, which is the vast majority of military housing now, they get what's called a basic allowance for housing that shows up on their pay stub. It's not taxable. BAH. And, and for most federal programs, including the WIC program, it does not get treated as income. But for military, uh, but for SNAP purposes, it does get counted as income. And it's just a quirk in the law. And we don't even actually know how many military families would be impacted by this. But it's something that we've been pushing very hard to try and change because we've seen food pantries that are operating on base across the country. Camp Pendleton alone uh, in, in the San Diego area there are four different pantries that, that serve on base, uh, the base population. And there's nothing wrong with a food pantry or a food bank helping people out, but there's no reason that those who are serving in our armed forces should have to turn to that on a regular basis for help. Yeah, Alex and Josh, you may both have some uh, experience or knowledge of this. Uh, as we try to understand what are the economics of serving in the military for the average person in the military, uh, you know, a private or somebody with a family on base or off base, what's their... So I remember uh, me coming in, I was a PFC, a uh, specialist, and uh, the you get paid on the 1st and the 15th. Those are the best days in the Army. Uh, you get paid, I want to say, at an E4 rank. It was 2200 a month, I want to say. 2200 a month. That was a few years back, and I know— E4 uh, is what, just the, how they classify the pay Yeah, structure. it goes all the way up to E9, okay. which is uh, Command Sergeant Major. If, if you're coming in starting as an E1, uh, it's you less, might be yeah. a, li- a little below $20,000 a year. So yeah. if you're supporting a household, that's not much to go on. And your BAH also, uh, I'm not sure if anybody knows this, goes up by state. That's your basic allowance for housing. Yes. Yeah. So your BAH, I think New York is the max, which is the most you can get in the military at a BAH. Uh, I want to say a place like... Uh, Alaska has a pretty low, low BAH because cost of living is nothing. And the whole state doesn't grab up too many, too many taxes from mm-hmm. anybody, so your BAH is really low. So you're, so if you're in the military at that, that lower level that you've talked about just come in, your, your income is not even reaching the poverty line. No. That's amazing. No. And there are lots of other expenses for military families where you're moving every couple of years. There are the moving costs and, and lots of things that – civilian families don't even have to think about. So that money uh, gets spread thin pretty quickly. Yeah. It's like you go into any fort and you'll find a parking lot with for sale signs, cars, boats, motorcycles, anything. RVs. It's too, it's too expensive to move them. They and can't keep move them. it, yeah. yeah. So you just grab your kids and your wife and your clothing and you just go. Right. So we're gonna, I mean, this is giving us, a, I think, a better picture of why some in the military need this assistance in the first place. These are just very significant expenses on a very low salary. Yeah. 
and if you you have family your your wife and she's at home there's not too many jobs out there that you can have other than working at like the food hall right that's it because yep. the child care isn't always covered yes that is right. definitely not covered unless you like go to s1 and you're just like begging for something i don't know i don't, I don't know what you can do um that's one meaning uh it's like the military services for homes and uh it's the admin okay where you can program. get assist, yeah. assistance from them got it um but yeah there's not you know it's like she the military helps out also your dependents but at the same time it's it's really hard on what they can help you out with yeah, so the question that jumps out at me josh is who opposes trying to fix that i mean aren't these the folks that we owe the most to and we're in fact giving them the least? Right. Uh, you know, there's a, an ethic in the military about not leaving anybody behind. But the truth is that we are leaving these folks behind. And it's been strange opposition in, in uh, meetings that we've had with members of Congress and their staff. Sometimes the pushback is about how much this is going to cost. And it, I just can't fathom that we wouldn't pay the expense of getting these families the help that they need from SNAP. I mean, that surely is the least that we can do. But the price tag for that seems to be too much to justify for some members. Some feel that there are financial uh, planning issues that are at play, that it's an issue about these lower-ranking enlisted members who are making bad financial choices, and they're getting themselves into a difficult situation. And while that may happen to some degree, it's really not uh, what's at play for the most part. I mean, these are, are folks who are not making a whole lot of money. They're trying to support a household uh, it's very difficult for military spouses to find employment. So that's part of the challenge, too, is that there's not often a second income that's supplementing the enlisted members' pay. Um, so it seems a, a pretty common-sense solution that's uh, that's available, and we're pushing hard to try and see it happen. It's ironic that the military spend is going way up, right? Right. So uh, ab- I mean, Absolutely. incredible but, irony but there. The military spending uh, that's lot. going up is, is not for... Uh, not for this. I mean, there is right. a little no, bit of I a know. boost for, for base pay, which is good and it's long overdue. Right. Um, and, and that would be, a, you know, a better comprehensive solution is to increase the base pay for those lower ranking enlisted members so they're really not close to the poverty mm-hmm. line. But the price tag for that is pretty high. So, Josh, what are some of the things that Maison has tried to do about this? Um, I think you've been involved in organizing military hunger summits, congressional briefings. Uh, what are some of the things that Mazone has done, and what are some of the things the rest of us can do if we want to uh, stand up, speak out, advocate for uh, vets and what they need? Definitely. Well, the big thing that we've been doing initially is just to call attention to this issue because so few people understand that there are military families who are struggling. And it's difficult because a lot of these families don't want to call attention to themselves. Um, there's a lot of pride uh, among military families, understandably, and, and some shame that goes along with uh, with struggling in, in turning to a food bank or food pantry or even applying for SNAP. So we've been pushing very hard just to raise awareness among uh, policy leaders so that they understand that there's a problem here. Uh, there's actually been a bill that's introduced in the House of Representatives. It has bipartisan support and Representative Susan Davis uh, from San Diego has been the champion for this issue, and it's been fantastic. Congressman Don Young from Alaska joined as her co-sponsor. And this would change the law around the SNAP eligibility so that uh, the BAH does not get counted as income for federal nutrition assistance programs. So it's a a really common-sense solution. What we're hoping is that it will be incorporated into the National Defense Authorization Act, 
the NDAA is an annual piece of legislation that must pass to authorize our, our country's military uh, operations. And we'd like to deal with it in that context rather than, say, in the Farm Bill, so that the offset, uh, how this would get paid for, doesn't come at the expense of other nutrition programs. So folks who are interested could reach out to their members of Congress, particularly getting Republican support is important, uh, right. and asking them to include this in the defense authorization bill. If, if there were ever a bipartisan issue, this should be it, right? This is something yeah. that Democrats and Republicans ought to be able to agree on. We've had a lot of success at Share Our Strength getting them to agree on uh, children who are the you know the, 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 the most vulnerable, the least responsible for the situation that they're in, making sure children get the meals they need through school lunch, school breakfast, and SNAP. But I would think that uh, right there with that is veterans in terms of what could be a, a, a bipartisan bridge, don't you think, yes. Alex? No, 100%. Like, I think everybody should really care about this. It's a big issue. Did the troops you served with know that you were a great cook? Oh yeah, yeah. And did you it was an up, ongoing did you, joke. Did you end up cooking for them or no? I never, no. Oh, no, never, never, never. Okay, they couldn't get you no. into the kitchen. No, <laughs> never. But it was an ongoing joke. So uh, why? What, what did they say? Like even when uh, I went to basic training, like drill sergeants was like, "Well, I'm not going to call you chef because that guy is from South Park and I love him. I don't love you." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was an ongoing joke. I think my whole career, everybody was just like, "Yeah, that guy over there, the famous guy." The guy that actually knows how to do something. Now, going forward, how will you manage your kind of competing interests between cooking and and serving? You said it's always in your blood, and you you're you're not currently in the military, but you sure feel as connected to it as it seems as when you were. You know, and it, it, I'm going to have these weird things to say, but it's like yeah, every often I'll go to a shooting range, uh, I'll pack a bag, and I'll go for a hike. You know, just to just so you feel that that evokes that feeling of when you're in the military. You know, I'll, I'll uh, start up a group chat with all my guys before, mm-hmm. and we'll just you know talk the shit together. You've stayed connected to a lot of them. Most of them, yeah. Okay. Some of them actually like uh, built a life and walked away. We're not the military, but so you're serving in a different way. But you have been doing some stuff for Share Strength, so hopefully that will satisfy some of your that counts as <laughs> some of your different some kind of your of need to serve, right? <laughs> It, it, anything that I do is always a big thing for me, and you know, I put, try to put 100% into it. Doing what I do with Share of Strength means a lot to me because I grew up pretty much hungry. You know, uh, There was a time in my family where everybody was unemployed, and there was no food. And my mom would tell me, hey, go to school. You know, It's, it's mm-hmm. uh, summertime, go to school lunches, You know, yeah. go, go eat over there because we don't have much here. It's like, all right. Uh, growing up, my first job, I think it was like at Popeye's Fried Chicken, you know, a part-time job right out of high mm-hmm. school. I was like, hey, all right, I got a check for $116, and I pretty much gave it to my mom. I was right. like, let's buy groceries. Like, I'm tired of, like, trying to get uh, school lunches, after-school programs. So the dinner that you're going to be helping us with in a couple weeks, Billy, did you know that Alex will be there? Yes. Okay. So Don't you're going to be at our uh, Share of Strength dinner uh, in a few weeks. And so that work and the work that we're doing around ending child hunger really sounds like it really resonates with part of what you, part of what you grew up with. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, a lot. A your lot. family benefited from these food assistance programs that we're talking yes. about. And it, it certainly didn't make you lazy, which is no. of course one of the myths. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, I don't know anybody who sounds like they've worked harder than you have. Not even, uh, my family. I want to say the whole community. It was Bedford Stuyvesant. You know, there was a lot of poverty in the eighties there. And if it wasn't the school, it was definitely the churches giving out food. Yeah. So you, you you had two options, that and a lot of uh, canned foods. And 
To this day, I still would never eat canned tuna. I just can't. Had too much of it. Yes. It, it brings back, like, makes me want to, like, throw up all yeah. the time. It's like, oh, canned tuna. No, 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 no. <laughs> and uh, your mom and dad still alive? Oh, yeah. They're yeah. still alive, you yeah. know. Uh, They're once, in New York? Nope. Once, no. once you retire and get old and chubby, you move to Florida. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that's where they are it's now. like Florida's a calling. Yeah, that's, that's where I'm headed then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you guys aren't old yet. Uh, or chubby. chubby. <laughs> Yeah, you're like, supposed to say not chubby. Or, or I said chubby. not chubby. Thank you. Not quick enough. Um, so in terms of uh, what's coming next for you, we can count on seeing you in the kitchen at the restaurant at Espita Mescaleria. 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 Um, you'll be there not just for my sister's birthday but beyond, so our listeners know where to find you. Be there. Any, any other restaurants planned, or that's going to be the focus? Uh, no, we, we got a few things planned up. Oh, yeah? You, we got a few things planned up. You have to tell Billy how many um, how much mezcal you have, because I think it's the biggest collection in I for sure in the in, city. In the all, but I want to say in all 50 states. Uh, in the really? whole country, yeah. Bill. Really? More mezcal than you've ever seen. And you've never had any of it. So No. And uh, Josh, tell us what's next for you, what you're going to be focused on at Maison. Well, I think we're going to roll up our sleeves and take a look at this budget proposal that comes from the administration and then the subsequent budget proposal from Congress. And uh, the attacks to SNAP we're not going to take lightly and uh, really do everything we can to to mobilize people to speak out because this is unconscionable what they're proposing. We've got to work hard to make sure that we're protecting and even strengthening a program that works so effectively to help tens of millions of Americans. So it's simply un-American to cut a program like that, to try and block grant it. So we've got our work cut out for us. And so for folks who are inspired by what they um, experience on Memorial Day, who want to support those who do serve to the extent that they can be involved in policy or advocacy, Josh, they can go to Maison's website and find out how to get involved and make sure that they speak up, not just for children's, but for veterans who might need assistance uh, given uh, all they've given to our country. Is that correct? We'll have opportunities for uh, action alerts around protecting and strengthening SNAP and then also trying to build some support for the Military Hunger Prevention Act to help those who are serving. You can find more information about Mazon at mazon.org, M-A-Z-O-N.org. Good. And, and uh, another voice that I hope people will continue to listen to is that, is, is that of uh, Chef Alex Samoyoa who has been here today from Espita Metzgaleria. Um, <laughs> the best I can do. Debbie, you do it. Oh, uh, Espita Mescaleria. Oh, that's much better. That's much better. <laughs> uh, here in Washington, D.C. But it's an honor, uh, Alex, to have you with us. And, pleasure's mine. Uh, you know, excited about your cooking and really grateful for your service. And I'm really excited that people get to hear your story and your commitment to this country and um, all the different ways in which you've tried to give back. It's really thank an you. honor to have you here. Thank so you. Thank, thank you. And Debbie Shore, my sister, always uh, excited to be part of this podcast. Thanks, yep, Deb. Always happy to be here. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post. Don't just preach. Get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. 
from Share Our Strength.